Hey, good morning, everybody. It is good to see you here. My name is Steve. I'm one of the elders here, and a long time ago, 12 years exactly, uh, my wife and I moved to this neighborhood, and we, uh, with the help of a small group of people, started this church. So if you have anything that exists for 12 years, either it's just through sheer will or stubbornness, or maybe, like I like to view it, that God is actually doing something that's robust. And uh, what we've done here <clears throat> over the past four weeks is we've tried to uh, just take another examination of the core values that make us who we are as a body. And this isn't to merely do a commercial for our church, but it's also let because we are cyclical here. We have people that come in uh, year after year. People come and go because they come to the city for jobs, employment, and they go elsewhere. And it's our goal as people come into our fellowship that we try to release them uh, to do greater kingdom work. And as we release people, we have DNA that we want to implant within their minds so that as they go elsewhere to do whatever God has called them to do, that they take this with them. So we've called this series Throughout the Hills because that's part of the vision statement of our church is to resonate the voice of God throughout the city and to the ends of the earth. And as we are uh, nailing this down for our fourth value, we have over the past few weeks discussed the values of creativity, the idea that we believe God has called us to be creative. And as urbanizers, as worships of Jesus right here, that we want to be creative with what God has provided us. With connectivity, this idea that, you know, we are very, very intentionally focused on making sure that people can forge actual connections. Many people come to the city and don't have the opportunity to actually engage and, and, and act with, with, with human beings on a deeper level, and we try to do that within Christ. On commission, this idea that we also, though, believe that we're called. We're not called just to come and gather, but we're called to go and to take that out. And last week, uh, Evan did an admirable job of showing our obligation to go, even when it's difficult. So we are wrapping this up with a fourth core value, which is one that maybe appears different than the other, but it is very integral to who we are as a church, and that's the value of city. And the reason why that it's incredibly valuable is that Echo would not exist apart from the city. It was back in 2004-2005 when Kelly and I started dreaming and praying about this and we lived in Mason, Ohio. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with Mason, Ohio, even if you're just going there to visit Kings Island or the Tennis Center or if you've actually at some point lived there. It's a great, wondrous place that you might feel compelled to visit. But one of the things that I found, even as a minister on the, on the staff of a very large church, is that every time we tried to start to get into really robust, profound spiritual issues, we would run into walls because of a, a, a cultural superficiality that was difficult to bust through. Because people wanted to hold on to certain views of her, who they were, we had issues of just trying to talk to the gospel. So when we uh, really felt called to start a new Christian community, we felt very, very convicted that we should do so in a place where there's not many Bible teaching churches that exist, and that was here in the city. So it was just through happenstance, and someday I can tell you all the stories about all the little things, the doors that opened, so that we were here and that we've been able to stay here but an important thing to note is that city will always be an important part of Echo Church. 
So this is where I hit disclaimer number one, and maybe it's the most profound uh, disclaimer that I had. Because in the first few years of the church, when I would spread this message that we are a church of the city, it was very well received because at that point, the vast majority, nearly you know, 90% or so of the people within our small group that started the church were urbanites. They lived here. They dwelled here. And what's interesting, though, is that over time, we have a vast assortedness of people who belong to this congregation. And some of those don't live in the city. And previously, I gave messages like this to try to just convict people, this idea that, friends, it's important that we focus on Christ in the cities. And some people were patently offended at the point because they felt like it was preaching a gospel that if you didn't live in the city, you're a lesser Christian. And while that's true in every sense... It's not true. But here's the thing that we need to understand, and I know many of you are part of this church, even though it requires you to get in the car and do a commute into the church every week. Here's one of the beautiful things about that, is that what we're trying to say, we're not a church necessarily that has to be in the city, but we are of the city. And there's a reason for that. So again, for everything that follows this, the preface is, is that this is not then to say if you live in a place in suburbia with you know, close access to a Chick-fil-A, it's not that you have to move, but it's just trying to see the cause of the church and trying to get that as you see this dualistic cause of where, it's, of, of, of where ministry exists. And um, maybe I can see the duality of that in my own story, is that uh, my father, uh, they were Appalachian immigrants come up from the coal mines and lived in Lower Price Hill, lived in the city his whole life. And by the time my dad finally got to the point where he got a little money, he bought land out in Bridgetown, which was essentially farmland at the time. But every week, Monday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night for prayer meeting, we would get in the car and take a 25-minute commute into the city to go to church. And it used to just drive me crazy. I'm like, we would drive past perfectly good churches to go back in the city. And still today, my parents in their 70s, are dedicated to that congregation, and the work that they perform there is robust. So here's the disclaimer that we get through all this. We're going to talk about the value of city, especially from a biblical perspective. But as we go through this, if you're feeling guilt because you're like, I'm not here right now, that's not intentional from this. If it's the Holy Spirit, I can't judge that. But here's the thing. If you're in that place, if you're in that space, or if you're at the beginning of this point trying to figure out where God's going to carry you, what we want to put within you is a value for the needs of ministering to cities because urban or urbanity is heading everywhere, even to the burbs. So I want to talk about that really quickly. And this is one of the, you know, the dichotomy between the two I think is important for us to see. So again, as we talk about this, this is what's interesting is that 12 years ago when we first came to the city, I could show these dueling concepts and they could be universally true. But now what you're seeing is an amalgamation towards suburbs of being infected with urban concepts and ideas. So this is one of the things that you'll find out. And this is something that I knew doing predominantly ministry in suburbia for over a decade. Is the idea is that you would have a settledness in suburbia, that people would find houses, and if they tended to move, they moved within the school district to make sure that their kids were in the same schools during, for the duration of their academic careers. Whereas you come to the city, it's not really that way at all. I mean, that's been kind of the heartbreak of the ministry that we've had to perform over the past 12 years. There are so many people that we've met and ministered to and became part of our lives. We have pictures of our daughter, Kaylin, from baby to now, hanging out with all these different people over time, and many of them are gone because God called them someplace else. There's a transience in the city, not just for you all maybe who are coming in, but even for some of the impoverished people. It's something that we misunderstand. A few years ago, and we were talking about this trunk or treat thing, I'm going to come back on it, 
is take your Halloween night. Don't, you know, don't worry. Like, you know, can you leave the bowl of candy, you know, unguarded outside your door? Come into the city and do it. It's the one night in the city that everybody is out because there's free stuff to be had. And you will see just a picture of what it means for the urban poor to come out and just look for something that, that is part of the community that provides for their family. But the sad thing was is that when we were just down a few blocks, uh, few blocks away in our previous location is that we had a robust ministry. The church there had a robust ministry that we um, partnered with. And all these kids were there. And, and talking to the minister of that church right now, all those kids are gone. Like none of them are growing up in that neighborhood because they were poor and they've moved on to the next thing. It's difficult to develop profound relationships in places of transience. Which makes it important then that we as the people of God figure out how to get into those relationships quickly so that we can have an impact on this. Also, this is just something that needs to be said, and it's, it's shifting within suburbs, but it's something that's true too. Homogeneity tends to be the property of the suburbs. If you study you know, the, the development of American suburbia, some of it was linked to the car, but friends, I mean, this is again, the guilt portion that the Holy Spirit will work through it. Some of that was inextricably linked with racial divide redlining, the idea that the suburbs could be a way to get away from those of different backgrounds from us, whereas in the city, there's a diversity that you can't ignore. Even as places become gentrified, this word of changing over poor neighborhoods to middle, upper-class neighborhoods, the, 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 there's always that point in there where new people coming in are like, well, I just wish it was a little nicer, but you have poor residents moving up to this. So our suburbs are changing because poverty is becoming more prevalent within the suburbs now than ever before. It used to be that you could hide it, but the, the, the turn of 2008, 9, and 10, where they made all these massive houses out there, there was a housing glut, and what you see here, even in parts of Cincinnati, within Mason and Westchester and parts of northern Kentucky, is that there are pockets of poverty that are developing, and it's even more difficult for people in the burbs who are poor to be able to survive because there's no public transportation, and they're so reliant upon their cars. One of the reasons that, you know, people are like, why do the poor people end up in the city? It's because everything they have can be here. One of the reasons that Walnut Hills, this area, this neighborhood, continues to be su such a good place for that diversity mix of new middle class, upper people, class people moving in and the poor is because this is flat on top of the hill and somebody could actually walk here without a strenuousness that is attached with maneuvering in other places in the city. Over the Rhine was the same place. When you have that walkability, the poor can maybe catch a bus. They don't have these needs. So we see a diversity in the city that has also existed. And then finally, I wanted to say that just generally, this is something that has been very interesting, is that in Cincinnati, when you, people talk about the politics of Cincinnati, and when I go abroad, they're like, Cincinnati is just such a conservative town. We're, we're a red county or a red state. But living in the city for 12 years, it is obviously exactly the opposite of that. If you're a Republican trying to win a seat on city council, you're probably the most progressive Republican that exists. And one of the reasons is, is that cities gen generally tend to be bastions of progressive liberal thought. And the reason that this becomes important then for us is that if we are a church that believes within the validity of the scriptures, right, that we believe that the Bible is true and robust and are doing ministry in a progressive thing, there are often going to be conflicts in what we want to believe and how close it exists with those people in contact. 
All, uh, one of the reasons, and you know me, is that you have to become very close to me to talk politics because I want to make sure we're in a safe place because at the same time, what you find is that it's a dividing line in conversations. And for us to be a, a church and a people who are trying to be in this community, but then also to see that our calling is something bigger than just a political agenda. It's about the transformation that happens in our lives through Christ. It, it, it becomes a source of what I just love to call the tension of the city. Tension. Again, if you are an urbanite or a suburbanite, and if you live in the city and you haven't felt tension from living here, then you're probably doing it wrong. Because it's difficult, friends. It's difficult to, to not feel the tension of politics, to not feel the tension of race, to not even feel tensions of community issues that can be divisive. This neighborhood continues to change and become somewhat gentrifying. And for a period, in the early years of the church, we were very involved within a lot that happened in the community. But then the lines became so virtualic, or, uh, vitriolic that we just had to step out for a while. Because it's like, there's no glory to be had here. We're going to continue to minister, but we're going to be easy as we do so. And now as we've come in to get these partnerships with some of these local churches here, it's this idea that there's always a tension and again, friends, the reason that suburbs can be popular is because the tension sometimes is lessened because of the homogeneity that exists right there. And what happens with lack of tension is we become more rooted into our ideas and we don't let the diversity impact us. I'm not going to lie to you. Is that 12 years ago when I moved my pregnant wife from the burbs into the city and I was like, we're going to start Echo Church. The idea was like, we're going to change the city, Right? Like every one of these churches right now, you can find them down the street, up the crossroads, everything in between. We're all like, we're going to change the city. But you know what I discovered over the past decade plus? Is that the city changed me a hell of a lot more than I changed the city. And I don't mean that negatively either. I think it's changed my whole perspective. I thought I knew what I knew 10 years ago when I came here. Sometimes I still don't even know what I know now. And that's the tension that's created. Friends, this is one of the things. We just don't really like tension in our lives. We say we do because we're like, we're cool and we're hip and we're like, I, I have an open mind. Screw that. Mostly, we like to know what we know and stay out of my business. But what the city does is it brings this tension within us. I want to go to a weird place here because as we open the scriptures and look at this, I want to go someplace that maybe on the surface doesn't even look like city, but it has a lot to do with it. And your Bibles turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. There are blue Bibles in the pew in front of you if you don't have your digital Bible ahead of you. That's page 130 in the blue Bible. And I'm not even going to lie to you because you could check me out. I wasn't here last week because I was preaching at a church up in suburban Dayton. And they assigned this text to me. But I promise is that it wasn't even what I'm talking about now is not what it is. So I'm not like even cheating here. It's the same text. What I'm going to do with this is completely different than what we did. I just like to have this disclosure so you don't think I'm completely lazy. I'm just partially lazy. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. To set some context, the Deuteronomy, and it's a weird word, but, but Deutero is the second. It's basically the second giving of the law. If you know anything about the history of the people of God, maybe you do know that they were enslaved in Egypt at the time, and God raised up a man, Moses, to be the leader to allow them 
to uh, leave Egypt, but as they were heading to the promised land, they continued to doubt God, and God said, fine, it got to the point where I'm going to call a do-over on you all. Forty years you will wander in the wilderness. I'm going to let that whole skeptical generation die off so I could raise up a new generation. And Deuteronomy occurs right as they're on the cusp of entering into the promised land that God has promised to them. And as they're getting ready to enter, what God wants to say is like, I need you to make sure that our relationship is good because as you go into a new place, as you find a new context, you need to understand where your grounding exists at. And that's what the, uh, Moses, who is speaking here through the, through the Lord, is doing for the people. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, 1 through 3. Will you all stick with me here as we go through this? These are the commandments, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach to you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan River to possess, so that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commandments that I give to you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Let me make sure I want to hear this. No, I want to stop right there, even though I got the verses wrong. No, I did. Did I? Yes, excuse me. Verse 3. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you, that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. This land flowing of milk and honey, the promised land, that's an agrarian term because when they saw lands with milk and honey, it's just like, look, there's going to be good agriculture here that is going to provide food for us so that we will be able to subsist. And what God is saying is that as you're going to this place that's promised, I do want you to stay grounded in who I am so that the generations after you won't forget who I am. This is very interesting because if you read then the history of what happens after this, there's always generation from generation when they're like, oh, we need to remember what happened in the past because every once in a while people just deviated from that. So the importance of having a grounding in what God is of what God wants from us is this idea that it impacts the generations after us. Of the many calls that I feel in my life and the many calls to be a shepherd of this church and to do various different spiritual things, the greatest call that I have burden on my heart for right now is making sure that I'm continuing to show my 11-year-old daughter what it means to be a woman of God. That's the biggest calling I have because I understand that there's a generational component to that. I'm trying to move this beyond. How does that happen? observation of decrees and laws. We don't like that, right? Even though it's in the Bible, you're like, I really don't feel good about that. Because nobody wants to think about their, you know, their, their interaction with God as a religion. We, we want it to be cool and hip in relationship. But understand, that's another point of tension. However you might want to say, I love God, I just don't like all the rules. Understand that that's part of the tension of following him, friends, is that there are things of which God wants from you. Now what's interesting here is that as he gives this list in verse 4 through 9 of what he's thinking about, it's not that complex. Follow along with me, verses 4 through 9, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk down the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and gates. Very famous text right here. And I always love to unpack this and we're not going to go all the way because it's called the Shema based upon that first verse in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 because the word here there, the Hebrew word Shema is key because think about it, when God is trying to define the relationship of his people and him, the first thing he wants you just to do is hear. To listen. 
And I'm not even going to lie, that's one of the reasons why we named this church Echo, because there's so many great metaphors in the Bible. It's like, oh, you have like the river church or crossroads church. Or, there's all these metaphors that we look at visual, but this is, this is an aural metaphor, right? What the most important God wants you to, thing God wants you to do is to listen, to listen. And I love that. He wants you to listen, and he wants you to love. And some of you are like, holy crap, that, I thought Jesus said that about love the Lord your God with all your heart. He, he did, but Jesus was quoting this text before God told his people to go into the promised land. What does God want you to do? Is to listen and to love. It's the most important things. Also, by the way, there's this, there's this idea to impress, to stamp, to develop in that. So it's not just you know, that, that, that it goes deeper than just something that can sometimes be temporary. Sometimes I listen, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm loved, sometimes I'm horrible at that. But all the times I'm supposed to have it on there. The Jews took this incredibly literally. They, on their prayer shawls, they would, they, they would um, sew in the, the verses of this scripture. And little uh, straps they would wear around their wrists and boxes that they would tie to their foreheads. They would take the scroll of this text and put them on there as they pray. Um, in the door frames of a Jewish person's house, you'll see these little boxes on the side called mezuzah where they've taken the scroll, rolled it up, and put there. So they've taken this literally. The most important thing that God's asking us to do before we go where he sends us is to put all of this in our minds. Now here's the key that is often missed about all this stuff. It's where I didn't go last week when I was in the suburbs of Dayton with my friends from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 12 here. This is very interesting. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to his fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give to you, a land with large flourishing cities that you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you into Egypt out from the land of slavery. Understand this. This is what's interesting about the promised land is that a lot of people make the assumption is that God's people were like these tent-dwelling nomadic people that when he came into it, it's like everybody is a farmer, right? Like farming reigns supreme. But understand as they're, putting in, as they're entering into the promised land, God says, do you know what the great thing about the promised land is going to get? Yeah, there's milk and honey, and yeah, there's going to be vineyards and things, but there's going to be cities there that you didn't even have to build. So there's already going to be a social structure that exists that your people can roll into, I, I, I preached this before, but there, there's two reasons that, the, that cities were critically important to people. It's because it provided the opportunity for provision, that there was a bunch of people living together that you could trade with. You know, there's this idea, the romanticized idea today, where it's like, we should just be, you know, be the hipster ideal, move out to a farm, you know, grow off the land and have this concept. But understand is that they're still calling Amazon to drop boxes off on the front porch. And that's what the benefit of living in the city was. Yeah, you could have your certain skill, but you had this interaction with each other. It was closeness. It was tight. So there was provision of there, and then there was protection, because then when enemy armies came in and invaded, friends, if you're at your farm and, and 10,000 soldiers are walking through, you're just done for. You might as well leave the keys and move on, right? But in the city, there were walls that provided protection. So what God is telling his people is like, hey, by the way, one of the benefits of this promised land, as much as you're thinking, I've got 40 acres and a mule, more importantly, it's like, no, I'm going to live in a duplex right next to the people that they're going to play their stereo way too loud at night. But when something happens bad, I know that they're there for me. That's the tension of the city, right? I love what the city has to offer. 
I like the idea that I can choose like from a myriad of restaurants and I'm still paralyzed by where I want to eat, you know, within all the choices of the pantheon that exist all over here, right? So, so that's one of the best things. The tension comes back for then is that how am I living? Am I living to just consume the resources of the city or am I actually blessing the city with what God has called me to do? That's the tension of the promised land. That's the tension that we have when we think about city. And that's one of the things, by the way, which is very interesting within Cincinnati, is because, you know, you'll find surrounding counties. But, so Hamilton County, in which the city of Cincinnati is located. And by the way, Cincinnati is a very small metropolitan area, only about 300,000 people. But when you take the tri-state area and the 2.2 million people that live here, and if you even, where I was last week, like suburban Dayton and suburban Cincinnati are all intermeshed to where the Dayton-Cincinnati metropolitan area will become this massive area. You're looking beyond 3 million people. It's crazy. But recognize is that in there, there's a small little city of 300,000. The counties of Butler and Warren and Claremont continue to grow. Why is that? Because people want the benefits of the city, but sometimes they don't want to plant back into the city. That's the tension that exists. We want what the city has to offer, but it's just not the way we want it. Here's the thing about the city. You have to take it for what it is, and then you have to decide what you'll do with it. Can I give you a few things on city that I just think is important for us to understand? I don't think we recognize this about cities. Cities are centers of power. That's why they're important. If you still look at how anything happens today, and you're like, no, 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 no. Digital world has changed everything. Cities are not as important as they were. A few years ago, in the nation of Egypt, as they rebelled against their nation because of what dictators were doing, they still gathered in Cairo by the hundreds of thousands to come in and to protest. Somebody today, when they want to change something in Washington, they organize marches in the middle of our nation's city, right? So they are still centers of power. And it's just true all over the world, because some of them are capitals, like we have in Washington, D.C. What's interesting, too, is one of the more influential centers of power in the world right now is New York. And for you Hamilton fans, you'll be able to see that tension, right? Because Hamilton's like, it doesn't matter where the capital is, because the center of finance will be in New York. And that's one of the things that still exists today. Cities are centers of power. I love this, that you can go down to downtown Cincinnati, and you can see that, you know, this beautiful old structure, the city hall that exists. But I've got to tell you something that maybe you've never noticed about that. Go downtown, maybe today if you feel like it, right about 7th Street, 8th Street, where City Hall is located, and stand on the front steps of City Hall. And then look to your south, and you're going to see that on the south side, there is the center of the Catholic Church in Cincinnati. And in the corner right across from that is a synagogue, one of the centers, now it's just more of a museum, but it's still one of the centers of Jewish worship. Look down the way a little bit, and you'll see the, friend, the church of a friend of mine, uh, Covenant First Presbyterian Church. My friend Russell preaches there. It's this magnificent, beautiful church that sits at the end of Pyatt Park. It sits there uh, as a place of worship. What doesn't exist that you can't see, on the north side of City Hall, there's like an ugly little garage right there and some parking lots, but that actually was the home of one of the most influential Christian churches in the country, and that's it was a lineage of the same family of where Echo was. All these churches were started up right surrounding City Hall. Why do you think that is? Because they understood that that was the center of influence. Cities are center of power influence. They're centers of cultural influence. And that's one of the things, too. In this digitized age where Bieber can become a YouTube sensation and then we're actually reading about his life daily, 
there's this idea that, okay, uh, you know, mobility has changed, but still, when people want to make it big and they're not lucky on YouTube, they go to cities that have influence. If they want to get into acting business, maybe they go to New York or they go to LA, or if they want to be in Bollywood, they go to Mumbai. Just still even thinking about that is that um, I'm not really high on Nashville right now because we're competing for our MLS spot, and you know, it really makes me angry. I, I would love to just take a little and talk MLS like expansion things, but it's interesting for Cincinnati versus Nashville, I don't like it because it's tough for us to live because no matter how much of you hate country music, this is still an incredibly influential city because of what exists there. So much still exists through influence of a city like Paris from fashion and from thought and trend that exists. And then here in Cincinnati, you'll see not only, only over the Rhine, this bastion for cute little overpriced boutiques and you know, sm, you know, small plate dishes that cost too much, but there, 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 are, there are people who are living down there in the tech industry that are having massive impact. Do you realize that because of Procter & Gamble's location that Cincinnati is the most influential marketing city in the United States outside of, uh, of New York? And the, the, the influence of our hospitals down here, like the growth of Cincinnati's children, which, you know, I just lived here my whole life, I've known about Children's Hospital, but now what it's doing even on the research side, it's becoming so robust that this city is a place where culture is impacted. And then finally, cities are centers of worship. This is very interesting too. Because as much as now you can go to the suburbs and see very large churches that exist in places, you never find places like this. And when you look up and you see the massiveness of this one obscure building that many people drive by every day, and it's an amazing little architectural feat, feat, feat understand that this is just one of these types of churches that exist in the city of Cincinnati. I love what Crossroads did with uh, St. George down the street, you know, and, and as they re reconstructed that. There's some beautiful places of worship just like this. Why did they build it like this? Because th this was a center when you came to worship, even when you moved out into the burbs in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, you came back into town to places like this because it exists. And globally, we think of our centers of worship. You know, we think of St. Peter's Square in Rome. We think about Jerusalem and how three major religions really fight over the existence of that. And I'm not even going to lie to you, but today, tens of thousands of people will come to church at Paul Brown Stadium. Now, their message will be way more sucky than even this is right here. But say what you will, there are these cathedrals that exist that broad bring people together to worship. Again, this happens in cities, friends. People move to it to worship. And this is why it's important for us and what we do. We need to recognize that we are called then to make sure that the worship is not that of something that obscures the message of God but illustrates it. Luther, uh, Lewis Munford, who was an urban sociologist, said the first germ of the city, I love this idea because we think of a germ, some of you are grabbing your Perel right now, but it's this idea that this, it's infectious, is in the ceremonial meeting place because it concentrates certain spiritual or supernatural powers or powers of wider cosmic significance than that ordinary processes of life. And you think about it, but I don't know if it's just me, but whenever I look at like Cincy shirts or some of these boutiques that open up and, you know, how iconic some of these things have, it's like, you know, the idea that when I say the 513, that people know, you know, that by the area code where we are, all these things are telling that there's this cultural existence that brings itself around cities, even for people who do not live in an urban area. And that's how the world is changing. But here's the deal that comes with that, friends. What it means then for us to be people of the Lord in a place like that 
it, it, we need to really grapple with it because it becomes so important. So again, one of the reasons that I love what we do as a church is that we exist in the city. And even if a wonderful you know, plot opens up out in Mason or in Hebron or just in some place where it's like, hey, we will give you a million dollar building. All you guys have to do is come in and do it. I just, I can, it won't happen. Because one of the reasons that this community exists is to be a light in the midst of the tension. How do we exist in the midst of tension as the people of God? Understand that it fits within the trajectory of the Bible overall. How does the Bible start? Bible starts when God created things verbally by his words in a garden. Utopia was garden, right? And that's why some people, I think, have this romanticism where it's just like that's what we're called back to is this agrarian existence. But the reality is that uh, we're, we're not even called to that. We're called to a hybrid, a hybrid urban-rural existence. And it's really uh, articulated well by a theologian, E. Luther Copeland. He writes, the goal of humanity in the scripture is a redeemed city. It's a garden city with the healing tree of life and the river of the waters of life transposed from the primal garden. The metaphor of ultimate redemption is a combination of God's creation, the garden, and man's creation, the city. So that's what we're longing for here. We want to be a community that helps to redeem where that is. What, does that mean that we're going to do it by ourselves? No. It's got to be bigger than this. And that's why we, we love the local churches in the city. Again, you can go on our website and you find a long list of churches that are just within five miles here. And one of the reasons that we push them is because we understand that their success is God's success, it's kingdom success, and we play a part in that. But what does it mean for you and I? Okay, what's the takeaway from this? You're like, okay, Steve, you've done a good job presenting city. Then what do we do? Let me go to Jesus because that's always the easing thing first and we'll see this and Jesus, Matthew 23, is the last week of his life. He's on a journey to the cross. And in doing so, he found places to stop and to reflect. And one of those places with the Mount of Olives, it's, it, it's really, I, I, I sat in the Mount of Olives before. Kelly and I were there with a group about 12 years ago, 13 years ago. And Jerusalem is a city surrounded by valleys, very much like Cincinnati. And you can sit on the Mount of Olives and it goes down to a deep valley before coming up and you get that beautiful scene of Jerusalem set before you. And the week that Jesus died, he sat there thinking about life and he looked at the city before him and this is what he said. Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. I love that as Jesus is about ready to die, he's looking at the city that would basically cause his death. And he's even recognizing how it has not reached its potential, right? Jerusalem, instead of being known as the city of God, has become a city where those who speak prophetically were killed. And that would be illustrated in the life of Jesus himself. And yet, before he dies, he sits here and he says, I love that city. I don't know about you, but if I was in a city and they tried to kill me, I would not love that city, and yet Jesus does. And I really think that's what you and I are called to do. But not just love the city for what it provides to me, right? 
Not just to love the city because I can hop on a streetcar and get to all these cool venues. Not because I can go hang out in a sweet bar and just have a great time. Not that, not, not that I can go to a sports arena where I, or, or, or a, a concert venue where I can see some of the best bands. Not because of what it provides to me, because what I see God doing through it. When we came here 12 years ago and we told people that we were leaving... Some of our well-intentioned Christian friends from Mason said, you know what, instead of planting a church there, you'd do better just to drop a bomb on the place. And then that would solve all the problems. And I was like, I just don't even, like, you know, you just shake your hand and just, you're just like, you suck. You don't even know where to go with that, right? What's interesting is I feel that that has changed a lot more, where, but it still exists. People feel that way about a lot of things. I don't let it get under my skin too much, but here's the thing. When you see the disgusting aspects of the city, the city that stones, prophets, and kills them, can you love it despite its bruises? Can you love it even though it's not what it needs to be? That's what we as his people are called to do. So maybe you do me a favor. Maybe this is the, the takeaway for you this week. Love the city for its flaws. Maybe that means you need to go someplace you know, in the midst of the city just to think, or, or, or one of our beautiful vistas that overlooks it. Maybe you need to spend some time just praying for the people of the city, for the churches, for the movement of Christ here. Maybe you need to do this wonderful thing that I find whenever I am doing it. I just walk the sidewalks, and some of you are like, there's some sidewalks that you should not walk on. Trust me, there's very few places in the daylight in the city of Cincinnati where you can walk that anything can happen to you. It's, it's overrated. Maybe you just need to walk some sidewalks. Maybe you need to be among people. Maybe you need to pray for them there. But what God has called us to be as the people of God is to love the city he's, he's, he's put us in. Figure out what that means to you this week. And regardless of where you live and regardless of where God takes you, take that love with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your scriptures. I thank you for this idea of a redeemed garden city that you put before us there. Father, um, Thank you for these words of Jesus, too, that shows us the tension of living in the city, that it is never going to be what we want it to be idealized. But boy, when, when, when a city is impacted by Christ, there's nothing there. We pray for our mission as a church. We pray for the other churches on mission with us here in our city that are trying to accomplish the same things we're trying to bring that there. We lift them up and our mission up because it's your mission. So help us to be light in the midst of tension this week, as we go out, we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, friends, that's all we have today. Go out, love your city. Be blessed. Have a good day.